Welcome to Footnotes to a Novel. I'm Travis Holland. Well, happy 2021. And what a year it's already been. I hope you all are well, and here's to 2021, bringing us all more light and happiness than the year we've just put behind us. Fingers crossed. And if you like the show, please do give it a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, and be sure to tell your friends. Just a quick note, Peter Ho Davies, whom I interviewed in an earlier episode, has a new novel out this month. It's called A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself, so do check that out. My guest today is author Karen Uden. Her work has appeared in Glimmer Train and the North American Review. She's the 2018 recipient of the Rona Jaffe Foundation Award and In 2019, she was a fellow at the Sizopo Literary Seminars in Bulgaria. In today's episode, we talk about Karen's novel, which is a work in progress, the manuscript of which I've been lucky enough to read. It's marvelous. It's a fictional account of a man named Dixon Bryant trying to become the first African-American to summon Mount Everest. I'm so honored to be able to talk with Karen about it. And before we jump into the interview, Karen has been kind enough to share her reading of an essay she wrote for the journal Scoundrel Time in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, which was when this interview was recorded back in the summer of 2020. And here is that essay, Fear Will Not Save Us. Fear will not save us. In 1967, when I was seven years old, I learned to pace at night. Those were nights when my father and his fellow black ministers in the Tioga Nicetown neighborhood of Philadelphia held ride-alongs with police commissioner Frank Rizzo's cops to prevent police brutality. My mother kept a quiet, somber vigil on those evenings. I recall the stillness of the house The fact that she wore her shirtwaist dress and sweater late into the night kept her shoes near the door, ready. So I paced too, until my father came home and the world, as I knew it, was secure again. My parents did a good job of roping off the world enough so that I felt overwhelmingly safe within my boundaries. Yet an undertow remained. For a while every week that year, some schoolmate told of a new prediction that the world would end on a Friday afternoon, and we'd all race home, sit on the front steps, and wait for what seemed inevitable. Across town, my cousin Kim asked her mother on one of those faded Fridays, am I going to die? My aunt didn't miss a beat. She opened the cupboard under the kitchen sink and pointed to the various drain cleaners and toxic liquids. Did you drink any of that stuff? She asked Kim, who shook her head no. Then no, my aunt said. Any kid might fear death in the abstract. We weren't any kids. No matter how safe a haven our parents created for us, we were still black kids growing up in a time when images of people like us being beaten, shot, set upon by dogs, and tortured by water hoses lit up our TV screens each night. We understood that we were being hunted. As I watch footage of George Floyd's murder, by police officers, I'm reminded of what I discovered in childhood, that we are game, blatantly, 
without hesitation, without warning, and my tendency toward fear flares up a chronic condition. Fear has been handed down to black folks as if it were mother's milk. It kept our instincts sharp, kept us alive and away from the lash. It became a good controlling tool for the slave owner and later the supremacist and then the cops. As a child, I deeply feared the sight of police officers. By age seven, I knew the cops rounded up quote unquote bad guys. And I also knew why my father and his colleagues rode with them at night. But I can call up a memory even before that. I was age five and riding the subway with my mother. A police officer stood near the door and glared at us, turning away and then back, scanning my mother and me. The billy club on his hip, the bulge of a gun, the low brim of his cap all terrified me. To top it off, he glared at us with what felt like disgust. I burst into tears, and the cop gave a short, amused snort. In that startling moment, I understood he would never come to my aid. You do not want to incorporate the fear, but you do. It becomes a separate bodily organ, say, wide and deeply lodged as a liver. You ignore it much of the time, work to keep it from becoming inflamed, but it leaves you perpetually wakeful, because there's no way around this truth. There are times when you'll need it. It's like Cedric the Entertainer's joke. White folks see people start running and they wait around to see what everyone else is running from, blithely curious. Black folks see somebody jump up too fast like he might run and we're on our feet and running. That joke is funny in a painfully accurate way. We reside atop centuries of being on alert. What must it be like to live without fear? In the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, my fear as a seven-year-old child has been transmogrified. I feel pure rage. My cousin Kim and I talk on the phone about death again. Is her adult son going to die? Die for going to the store, for walking through his neighborhood, for having the audacity to be black and alive in America? Hell no. We take to the streets carrying generations of children who have asked their parents, am I going to die? As well as generations of parents who answered, hell no. Fear will no longer protect us. We refuse to spend our lives pacing the floor. So Karen Newton, uh, thank you so much for joining me. It's great talking to you today. Oh, thanks so, so much for asking. Um, so I thought we would, uh, talk about your new novel, the novel you're uh, currently working on and close to finishing, uh, Descending Everest. Uh, I read an earlier iteration of it. Um, we follow a school psychologist named Dixon and, and his attempt to, or climb Everest and maybe the aftermath of, uh, climbing Everest. So what drew you as an author to Everest? Oh, wow. Um, it started actually in 1996 uh, when there was the big disaster on Everest that, you know, became the IMAX movie and Into Thin Air. And I think Everest had never been on my radar before then. Uh, but I was fascinated with the fact that this is what happened. Wait, people climb Mount Everest still? I, I knew that Edmund Hillary had done it, but, you know, it's been done, right? Plus, they climb it and they die. And so I think I was 
continuously stunned by it and it invaded my fantasy life in some ways and then bled over into my fiction life, which is very separate from the fantasy life. You know, I live in my head a lot. So it, it finally bled into why would somebody do this and what happens after you do this? That was really the thing that I think compelled me. And it's a daunting setting, isn't it? Everest, right? I mean, right. So, I mean, it's a, Everest has a certain, a a kind of power to it. It, It's the large, it's the tallest mountain in the world, but there's also a kind of, there's a mountain of the mind to quote uh, the writer, Robert McFarland. It's an idea when we think of Everest and uh, mountaineers prepare for their climb. And, and well, we writers, we prepare for our own sort of climb too. (laughs) So, so how did you prepare? for Everest. What was your research like? What were you thinking about when you were uh, working your way towards this book? You know, it's really funny that you would equate the two because I spent much of the first couple of years, because this has been quite the journey. I am descending Everest along with my character. The first couple of years still feeling like, why do people do this? This is crazy. And there was a point um, after a lot of the initial research, you know, reading, watching videos, watching training movies, all kinds of things, um, when I actually talked to some alpinists um, who are people who spend their lives climbing these daunting mountains. And suddenly I understood it. And I understood it in the context of writing fiction, oddly enough, because as I talked to him, the, uh, the climber I, I interviewed, so many of the questions about why you do this in your life, what is compelling you, are the same kinds of questions that writers face. Because, you know, your life could be a whole lot easier if you weren't trying to sit around and make things up. But something compels you, and it comes to a point where you stop asking why. And as you do this over the course of your life, you build into it the idea that you're going to fail you know that you're going to fail. And so, you know, try, fail, fail better next time, you know, try again. And that's what it's like for climbers. They're looking for the true alpinists. Um, And there is a distinction between the real climbers and the ones who um, just want to get to the top, right? The real alpinists are looking for a good experience of the mountain. And they understand that a third of the time they'll fail. And I thought, well, heck, I certainly know that from writing, don't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I can certainly uh, sympathize with this idea of trying and failing. I mean, yeah. I, I think whenever we, I think it's a good attitude, this idea that, or acceptance that we are trying to sort of do something and we understand that built into that very act of doing it is the failure. But failure in a successful way. You know, you make it to the top, you actually make it to the top of the mountain, but it may not be the mountain that you thought it was when you first started. And the failure is a kind of freedom. It it sounded um, to me in talking to the couple of climbers I've talked to that the idea that they won't always reach the top, that that is not the ultimate goal, even though certainly they want to reach the top, but they have to get something else along the way so that not reaching the top becomes okay. So to, so that when you get up within 500 feet and that unthinkable moment happens when you realize the storm is coming in 
and you can't possibly complete this journey, that you have the wherewithal to say, okay, I'm going to turn around as opposed to keep going because I have to have the summit, you know? And frankly, that's the part that was most surprising to me in the research, finding that kind of fortitude and self-assurance, I think, in the Alpinists that they could do that and still consider that a successful trip, which doesn't mean they don't go back again. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And there's some, and and not to make the too uh, much of a comparison between riding and mountain climbing. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're not falling off of cliffs or anything like that, but there is something about people who climb mountains uh, among uh, alpinists. I, I imagine that they sort of understand why they do it right? Mountaineers understand without even having to say why they do it. And I found that so true with riders. It's among riders. It's, it's just sort of a nod. It's just sort of a look. It's like, yeah, this is why we do it. This is why we spend our lives doing it. Uh, And it's difficult to explain to people who don't do it. Exactly. And once I understood that, then I understood mountain climbing. That, yeah. oh, I can't explain this. All right. Okay. I get it. <laughs> so what do you think, what draws Dixon to Everest though? You know, when you talk about the mountain of the mind, it's not only a, a place, it's not only an, a challenge, but it represents something to him, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. The biggest distinction that I learned in sort of researching all of this is that there are alpinists, those people who sort of devote their lives to climbing mountains constantly. And then there are the clients. And Dixon's a client. He's a person who can take 65, 70 grand, give it to a guide and say, I'm in pretty good shape. Get me to the top of Mount Everest. And Getting to the top of Mount Everest is the goal. So what draws Dixon to it, he probably would never have thought about climbing Mount Everest if his brother hadn't pushed it. His brother has been, I think the only way I can describe him as kind of a pretty boy. Things have come in easily to him. He's good looking. And he's reached that point in his life where he realizes, as he says to Dixon, I need something to show for my time. And somehow he decides it's Everest. He falls in love with a photo, with an interview that he sees, and he decides this is the thing that will change my life. I will come back changed from Everest. And Dixon's job has always been to look after his his brother, who is always in something, you know, and Dixon is the actual athlete. And so he's the one who says, okay, I'll train us. I'll get us there. I'll look after you. And, and of course, as uh, I, I've read an earlier dr- draft of this, mm-hmm. we know that something, and I won't give it away, but uh, tragedy happens on the mountain yes. with uh, Dixon and his brother, uh, Nate. So um, I was uh, having a conversation recently with uh, a writer we both know, Peter Ho Davies. And we were talking about historical fiction. That's a sort of realm that uh, Peter works in. And I was talking about my concern about imposing our current age onto the past 
and yeah. uh, historians call it presentism. It's an idea where um, we sort of think that people think like we do now, and they always did. And Peter said something very uh, interesting and enlightening. He said, but no matter what we write about, our age always, even if we're writing about the past, it's an opportunity to say something about our time in this moment. And I was thinking about that when I was thinking about your book, your novel, Descending Everest. I was thinking, although that's set in the present moment, um, it's not historical fiction, but it's about a specific thing. It's not necessarily about our, our contemporary times, but what, in what way does Descending Everest though have to say, what does it have to say about our era and about America? particularly after the death of George Floyd. I mean, does it have something to say? Have you thought about it? Because you've been working on this book now, and I thought about that too. You're finishing this novel up right now in a very uh, uh, tumultuous, or not tumultuous, but a very important time. So I was just wondering if you were thinking about that as you were writing. Absolutely. That's a really good question because... Dixon is an African-American 47-year-old man who climbs Mount Everest. Um, there are so few Black people who climb. Um, there is a small team. Um, they attempted Denali. They've not yet uh, attempted Everest. They will eventually. In 2012, the first African-American man um, was part of a National Geographic um, contingency expedition to Everest. He did not summit, but he was a pretty big name. Um, so I actually set this in 2011 because it would make my characters the first African-American men to reach there. The first Black man to reach the summit was actually South African. But part of what helped me narrow down the research was thinking about the whole trip, the whole business of being a climber in light of being this Black man in America who, first of all, has the privilege of having $65,000 to spend, you know, and it was funny, it was one of the things people asked me, where did he get this money from? How did he get this money? You need to explain that, right? <laughs> um, but I think that in this final revision, given what's going on now in terms of social justice, but also the way that we're looking again at what are the possibilities and what are the limitations and what are the weights that um, Black folks in America carry, especially Black men, it has clarified something that I've been reaching for with Dixon and his brother, and particularly with Dixon after the climb. Part of that has been um, that he is juggling the weight of expectation based on class and privilege, right? And that he comes home with this problem of the tragedy that's happened on Everest and no one can relate to it. No one in his life. He's not sure how much to make public or how much not to, although it's clear that he's suffering. And one of the characters says to him, you know, you're a new kind of failure. You're born out of privilege. We don't quite know what to do with you yet. And I think that for me really clicked as I was thinking about, you know, I've got this black man who goes to climb Everest. Who's going to look at this and say, oh, this is ridiculous. But that's the point, that yeah. it is outside of the box. 
I came to understand it um, in that way and that it carries this new burden of possibility. Every new um, experience becomes part of what is possible. And he has got to claim that in a particular way. Um, a new kind of failure. I love that. Yeah. That's extraordinary. Yeah. That's wonderful. So I, I wonder, Karen, if we could talk too um, about this, uh, your wonderful essay that you wrote recently. And I had the great pleasure of reading. It was a short essay called Fear Will Not Save Us. Uh, it just appeared in the journal Scoundrel Time. Uh, and I, I wonder if we could talk about that uh, moment, if that's great, if that's okay. So it opens in your essay, it opens with a memory you have of being a child in 1967. You're waiting for your father to return home. You're seven years old. You're waiting for your father to return home from his ride along with police officers in Philadelphia. And your father was a minister, yes? Yes, yes. And can you talk a little bit about the work he was doing at that time? You know, um, so much of it seemed kind of beyond me. I'm, I'm piecing things together still, you know, and asking my mother. There was so much that was naturally occurring that I don't know that it stood out for me. But I do know that he was part of a coalition in our neighborhood, which was Tioga Nice Town, and a coalition of Black ministers who were riding with the police because at that point, um, Frank Rizzo was... Uh, police chief and he liked to do what was called jump outs where several police cars would zoom in on a house or a car or someplace else and they'd all jump out and kind of rough up the people who were there um this happened in black neighborhoods all over all over the place and rizzo loved to be part of it he wanted to be there in the jump outs so there was a lot of police brutality, especially in North Philadelphia. And so these ministers were riding along to try to pre prevent that. Um, so that's how my father was involved. That's a terrifying expression, jump out. Yeah, that, it that, is. I mean, it you is. know, you know, some, some terrible things are going to happen. Some violence is going to happen absolutely. when you, when you go into it, calling it a jump out. Yes, absolutely. And you write in your essay, any kid might f fear death in the abstract. We weren't any kids. No matter how safe a haven our parents created for us, we were still black kids growing up in a time when images of people like us being beaten, shot, set upon by dogs, and tortured by water hoses lit up our TV screens each night. We understood that we were being hunted. That's a tremendously powerful word, hunted. And I know you choose your words carefully. So is this sense of hunted something you grappled with at the time and, and, and grappled with since? Yeah, it's a kind of subterranean knowledge. And, you know, most of the time you don't dwell on it because you couldn't and, and live. But there will be an occasion where all of a sudden all your instincts well up and there's that rush of sort of, oh, my God, am I safe here? That's really what that translates as. And that has happened throughout my life in different periods. I have been lucky enough so that it's not my everyday reality. You know, um, but I do know I do remember those moments of feeling very unsafe in Philadelphia. You know, the, the biggest one is 
um, that memory I have uh, um, in the essay of being on the train and I feared police officers so much. They terrified me um, seeing their uniforms. And I think one of the reasons was uh, my father had overdue library books and the cops came to our house one night when I was a little kid, still around five or six. They came in, two or three of them, and took him out and arrested him for overdue library fines. Oh, my. My mother was frantic. And, of course, the next morning they said, why didn't you tell us you were a minister? We would have let you out. And he was like, what difference does that make? I'm a human being. And here are the library fines. Um, So there was the sense that um, even though I felt so safe in my family, and with friends and all of that, there was a safe uh, uh, idea that something else was out there, you know? I imagine so when your father's arrested for late library books, Karen. That's right. That's yeah. extraordinary. Yep. yep. Um, and you also write that in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, my fear as a seven-year-old child has been transmogrified. And what has it become? What has it been changed into? My first reaction was um, what Michelle Obama described as exhaustion. The first thing I thought was, oh my God, not again. And then as the picture became clearer of what had happened to this man, and I still have not watched the full video, I, I cannot, but I did observe that eight minutes and 46 seconds of silence And the longer that silence went on, the more disturbed I got. And by the end of it, I was just sobbing. And it has released just a kind of anger in me, a kind of anger, you know, about still having to fight the same fight. And the biggest manifestation is really, you know, being thrown back to the 60s. I really feel like I am... I am reliving so much of went on in the 1960s. And it's funny because, you know, I was born in 60, so I was a little kid during that time. And it all seems relatively normal. You don't know any better. But now as an adult looking back, I'm like, wow, this must have flipped my parents out. Oh, this is what was really happening, you know? Yeah. And I don't know if this is a question any of us can answer, but what do you think accounts for this moment? Why now? You talk about the 1960s. 19, and, and I've heard s- writers and journalists talking about 1968 in particular. You're, you're writing about 1967 in your essay, but we're right in that moment, 1967, 1968. And now in 2020, we see the protests on the street, massive protests, unlike any we've seen for a long time, if ever. What do you think accounts for this moment? Why now, Karen? It's you know that's really interesting, and I've in talking to friends, um, one of them mentioned something to me that I hadn't thought of before, and it actually was Elizabeth Kostova. She said, "I think this is about the pandemic, and the pandemic has made it possible because of two things: one, we're already on edge; two, we're really alert, and also all these kids have nothing to do this summer." but come out and protest. This is their job. And they have coalesced around this mission in a way that is so extraordinary. And it's almost like 
um, you know, that Monty Python joke, I'll have one more grape, just one more. And he has that one grape and he explodes. I think this was the one more grape, man. I, that's really what I think. One more grape. That's what <laughs> right, it was. Right. Yes. One more grape. It just was like, I, I, as Papa used to say, I'm taking all I had. I can't stand no more. Right? That's right. That's and right. And it's such a horrific thing. We got to see all of it. And I think in that moment, everybody who watched any part of that video was just struck by the fact that someone was being murdered and that that could go on and that we could allow that. And there's nothing we can do about that pandemic that seems to be coming for us. I mean, yes, we can wear masks. Yes, we can social distance, but we can't stop it. This we can handle. We, by God, we've got to be able to handle this. And so I think in that way, the juxtaposition of the pandemic and the violence have come together and coalesced into um, this power that's kind of astonishing. It is astonishing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And um, now we talk about the pandemic, and and I've heard f- folks, particularly writers, uh, talk about the difficulty of writing right now. And um, I I wondered if if you found it have found it difficult to write or concentrate or work on your novel or focus or what's that been like for you in this moment. Yeah, I mean, it's been difficult. I have some sort of fading focus anyway, just given, I think as you get older, you you know, I used to love to binge write, man. The whole weekend I'm going to order in Chinese. I'm not going to change out of these clothes. I'm just going to write. Yeah, that's not happening anymore. <laughs> and And I've been really fortunate during this time in that, you know, I'm still employed. I'm working at home. I'm safe. I'm stable. My family is safe and stable, all of that. And still, um, and I'm an introvert, so being at home is cool with me, but still it is hard to focus. And I think part of it can be that you always ask yourself about fiction. Who needs to read this book? Is there anybody out there clamoring? Am I bringing some value to the world? And you have to get over that part of yourself. Um, and just decide this is what I'm given to do. Let me do it. Um, but to be able to focus and block out enough of all the disruption and uncertainty that is not going away anytime soon it has been challenging. And I, I've had to be patient with myself. So I made sort of a pact with my friend Mary Kay that we would work one hour at a time, just one hour today. That's Let's do it. And some days it's been a struggle to make the one hour and some days that one hour stretches into three, but one hour I can manage. Yeah. Yeah. You're climbing a mountain, Karen. (laughs) (laughs) And and here's the thing. I'm descending the mountain and most people die on the way down. That's right. That's right. right. So it's the one step or the 10 steps. I just take my 10 steps or the hour. Uh, That's what I'll do. And I'll just get through this. And so, uh, and back to your novel, Descending Everest. Um, so you just finished it, or, or you're still in the process of working on it. And um, I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to read it, if and when you're ready. Uh, I'm so looking forward to it. 
Thank um, you. I, I would never inflict it on you a second time, but if you insist, I'm happy. <laughs> I always insist, Karen. And I really want to thank you for your time. It's been wonderful talking to you and seeing you. you. And uh, uh, I, I just have one uh, last question too. Your your essay, Fear Will Not Save Us, is a wonderful essay. Have you thought about expanding that? Have you thought about, what's the response been? I've had a really good response, a really strong response. And in fact, um, I wrote it in a bit of a fury. It was one of those things when, when you know, the tragedy first happened, um, the murder of George Floyd, and I just, it poured out of me and I just kept writing. There were several other pieces that I took out that I think will become um, standalone essays on their own. So I'm, I'm, that's one of the reasons I'm ready to get the novel out to some readers today. I mean, this week, not today, I wish. This week, so that I can get back to working on essays. Well, I look forward to reading that. I look forward to reading, as always, I look forward to reading what, uh, what you're working on, Karen. And I, again, I want to thank you for your time. It's been great oh, catching you. up with you. And uh, so thank you so much, Karen. Thank you. It's been lovely, Travis. My thanks to Karen Newton. It was wonderful getting a chance to talk to her about her work. And my thanks to you, listening out there, wherever you are. It's been such a pleasure sharing these conversations with you. More to come in 2021. Until then, stay healthy and happy reading. I'm Travis Holland, and you've been listening to Footnotes to a Novel. Take care. <laughs>